Uh, interesting New Testament epistle, that's for sure, isn't it? Uh, that we have this letter of not so much correction. I mean, that was 1 Corinthians. Um, it's this letter of battling for um, the hearts and minds of the Corinthians. And there's these men over there that are um, peddling the gospel, peddling the word, um, deceiving hearts, uh, challenging Paul's authority and apostleship. And, uh, you know, Paul from a distance has been trying to reconcile and trying to win them over and trying to uh, defend and plead and uh, and so these final couple chapters are uh, just, there's a lot of that going on. And so uh, you've kind of seen this process over the last five chapters or so of Paul, like, not wanting to spend too much time defending himself, you know, and not wanting to boast about what God has done through him. And then finally, you know, it's like it's all coming to a forefront of, of the the desperate need of the Corinthians to uh, put out these false teachers. And so he kind of just lays it all on the line in these uh, last few chapters here. And um, he says in verse 1, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you to, as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not received, you may well put up with it. Uh, so, uh, just interesting language here that Paul is speaking to his beloved. And uh, he says, you know, I, we're going to need you to just bear with me here as I do something foolish. I'm going to boast in what God has done through me. But he really prefaces it in chapter uh, 10 with, if anyone is to glory, he's got a glory in the Lord. And he sets up this time of boasting and that it was always the Lord doing it, and it's for the Lord's purposes. And Paul's purpose in boasting is for the salvation of the Corinthians, that they wouldn't be deceived, they wouldn't end up in hell, and to, and to, and to uh, save God's glory from being robbed by these men. Uh, the difference is we also see that these men were boasters as well, but they were boasting in their flesh, they were boasting in their philosophies, they were boasting in their wisdom and their eloquence of speech. And so the purpose of their boasting was for the elevation of themselves. And so there's a difference. And so uh, the bragging is a good folly. Uh, but Paul feels foolish doing it. He, you know, he shouldn't have to do it. Uh, he's also going to get into some folly of jealousy. And he speaks to them of the jealousy that, that he has for them. Uh, it's a godly form of jealousy that is zealous. Zealousy is really what it is. He is zealous for their hearts. He is passionately ardent and on fire for their affections. He wants them to reciprocate the love that he's been giving. And in chapter 12, we're going to see, although the more I love you, the less I'm loved. <laughs> you know, 
Sounds like me and my middle school girlfriend. Okay, anyways. Um, I don't even remember her name, so. And yet it still hurts. So Okay, just kidding. We talk about it. <laughs> I know, she knows. So Paul goes on to say, okay, it's time. It's time to proceed with the folly. Verse 5, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Um, according to my estimation, I am just as good as they are. Now, the language is actually that of sarcasm, and yet there's also some truth to it. But his tone is sarcastic. Um, it's true, uh, you know, 2 Corinthians twelve eleven says that um, I'm becoming a fool and boasting for you've compelled me, for I have ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. And so he does say that, that in no way was I behind or below or less than those guys that as Galatians says in chapter 2, Paul says, there were men in the early church in Jerusalem that I perceived to be pillars. There were men that were obvious leaders. They were guys that were, were within the inner circle. Um, Peter and John and then uh, the Lord's brother, James. Uh, and so these guys were pillars. They were kind of some of the head of the head apostles. And in no way was I behind them. Even though uh, he'll say in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, um, I was like a guy that was born out of due time. You know, I, I wasn't with them in the gospel period, but I'm there in the book of Acts period. And, you know, he goes to say, just like they all saw the risen Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, I saw the risen Jesus. And so, you know, I have this commission by the risen Jesus in the same way that they do. And those eminent apostles, uh, Galatians says, they recognized that I had the same calling as them. And so it says that they realized that we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcised. So Paul, you know, he, he's right, but it's not what he's saying here. He's actually being sarcastic. He's just as, he's on par, oh, no, sorry, that was not for you guys today, par. He is on par with Peter, James, and John, but he's not oaf, no, wait, where's Nate? Okay, he's not, I got, I can't do that. Uh, But that's not what he's talking about. He's being sarcastic. He's saying, these guys, in the word eminent apostles, uh, it's actually a sarcastic phrase, and it kind of means super duper apostles, you know, the heavy duty, you know, he's using this language that's almost silly, that eminent apostles. And he's talking about those guys that they're following in Corinth. And he's saying, I'm not behind those guys at all. Your super duper guys that you guys think are just so eloquent and just all that in a bag of potato chips, you know, he's like, I'm not behind them at all. In fact, I'm not even behind the big, the big guns that the Lord commissioned. And so uh, <clears throat> those extra super apostles, Paul was right up there with them, whether it was the, the, uh, the false ones or the real ones. And so he says in verse 6, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we've been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. 
You remember that the eminent apostles, the real ones in the book of Acts, it was obvious to the Jewish leaders in the early chapters of Acts that they were untrained men. Do you remember that? It says that they saw them and they perceived that they were untrained men, but when they saw their boldness, they realized that they'd been with Jesus. You guys, that's what matters. Have you been with Jesus? We've been going through in our discipleship core groups right now um, just this wonderful week of abide. Abide, remain, dwell with the vine as we are the branches. For without him, you can do nothing. But when you've been with him, when you dwell with him, when you remain, it shows in your life if you've been with Jesus. And one of the things that will happen as you've been with Jesus is you will be bold to open your mouth and tell people about Jesus. That is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is that type of boldness. That is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's the purpose of boldness to preach the gospel and testify of Jesus here, there, and abroad. And when people see that, they might go, oh man, like Lakeview High School graduate, um, uh, you know, didn't even finish School of Ministry Bible College, you know, because his dad had a stroke mid midway through the year. Oh, if any went on to welding school, <laughs> you know, um, like, where's the big certificate on the wall, man? You know, like, I don't see the, the, the diploma. It's just not there. <laughs> I can't even find my Lakeview High School one. I think I hit it on purpose, but, uh, you know, but when people see the bold proclamation of the gospel, they say, there's got to be a God. There's, you know, there's got to be a risen Jesus. And these people have got to know him. Because that, that is what I'm seeing right here. And you will have the same power and authority that Jesus had when he spoke that they said, where does this guy get this authority that he speaks these things? Because the same anointing that is upon Jesus is upon us now. We are Christians. Christians. Little Jesuses running around. We're not Jesus. We're not the Savior. Don't take that too far. It's been done before. And they're wackos, you know. Uh, but we are little representations of Jesus in this world. We are um, ambassadors and imitators of Christ. Uh, even though we've got this untrained speech, which speaks of a layman or an unskilled person, that's something that the Corinthians would just disdain. And when you read like chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, you see that that is what the Corinthians put their stock in. Someone who was a Greek and just wise in the wisdom of this world and a philosopher and just they, you know, they eat Apollos up because he was that guy. But then there's guys that aren't that and Paul was one of them. I'm a layman and it's who those false guys make fun of. They make fun of guys like me, but they need to know that as the second part of the verse says, I have been shown among you, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not untrained in knowledge, and it's been shown among you. The word knowledge is gnosko in the Greek, and it means much more than a head knowledge. It means to know by experience. And Paul says, you know, I am not untrained in experience with Jesus. And all that's been manifested to you guys. In another place, um, uh, he says that uh, we have shown with signs and wonders um, the gospel uh, before then. So uh, verse 
7, 8, and 9. We'll read that together. That was 2 Corinthians 12, 12, so that'll be in the next chapter. We're going to have a little bit of like a common theme over the next two weeks. Don't let it get old. Um, when Paul says, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you. Uh, but verse 7 through 9 here, did I commit sin in humbling myself or putting myself down that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches. Now don't pass out and, you know, <laughs> oh, uh, it's, it goes on. I've robbed other churches, taking wages from them in order to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a financial burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so will keep myself. And so uh, there's this irony here, a little bit of sarcasm. Was it a sin that I loved you so much? Was it a sin that I laid my life down for you? Was it a sin that I did, you know, free labor for you for years? Was that a sinful thing that I put myself down so that you could be advanced when I preached free of charge? Uh, he robbed from those churches. It's a very strong word, and it's the same language of someone going out that the Greeks would use when someone would go out and rob soldiers who've been killed in battle and just strip them of their armor and of their valuable possessions. And he says, that's basically what I've been doing uh, to these other churches. But then he mentions those other churches, and who were they? If you remember Blaine's teaching while I was in Nepal, uh, it was that, those wonderful churches in Macedonia. Those churches are the example of giving. As chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians says, they gave uh, according to their ability and beyond their ability. They were freely willing. And Paul says, I want you to compare yourself to them and see how you're doing with generous giving that spurs from the gospel, that spurs from the indescribable gift that he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor can become rich in Christ Jesus. Paul preached that in chapters 8 and 9 to the Corinthians. And he says, that church Macedonia that is living that way, the Philippian church and others like it, um, they were the ones that supplied the ministry to you guys. Uh, well, I ministered free of charge. And verse 9 is almost sad because he was <clears throat> present. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> he was present with the Corinthians and he was in need while he was with them. That kind of breaks my heart for the guy. You know, you can just what, picture what that looks like. We'll see a little bit at the end of the chapter. He talks about times that, you know, he was um, famished and hungry. Times that he was thirsty. Times that he was cold and times that he was naked. And, I mean, it seems like that would, those would kind of fit into times that, that you would see him in Corinth <clears throat> um, as he was there in need. But we see that uh, while he was in Corinth, Acts 18 says that he found Aquila and Priscilla and met them. And they were all tent makers, so they all did business together. And that was his tent making skill, you know, to help his um, ministry. And, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 speaks of, you know, a minister of the gospel should be able to live from the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's the right of anyone who labors in the ministry 
Um, I have the wonderful privilege uh, to be able to be a full-time pastor. And I go to pastor's conferences where there's many pastors that they're not full-time pa- They buckaroo, you know, uh, for some extra money. They're farriers, horseshoers, you know, to be able to help put food on the table. My buddy Josh Bryant, there's electricians, you know, there's guys that work at uh, Brian, who was here on Sunday. He has a ministry to the Arabs in Anaheim, and he works at Costco as a general manager, you know, and these are all tent-making skills. And I actually went to welding school um, so that I could have a tent. That was going to be my tent-making skill, was I can weld on the side and minister the people. And uh, that day may come still, you know, uh, when that's necessary. Uh, but Paul had that tent-making skill because First Corinthians 9 says um, he didn't want to abuse his authority in the gospel. That as an apostle, they would feel like they've got to pay him. And there was already some tension there with the Corinthians in this capacity. And so he preached the gospel uh, without charge uh, so that there would be no scandal, no abuse, anything like that. He tells the Ephesian elders something very similar in Acts 20 when he says goodbye to them, that he coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Can't say that about you guys. You guys are dressed very well. Mark those shirts, buddy. I'm covering them. Uh, but uh, what's that one? Stop, walk, and, and Ewok. Oh, yes. Star Wars jokes. Uh, <clears throat> you know, but... Covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. He says, you know that these hands have provided for my necessities for those who were with me. He even worked for the people that were with him to be able to be in the ministry. And you know what's so cool? That's the heart in this body. It's just like, man, you know, if I got to work extra so that this ministry can happen. I remember a couple years ago, we were trimming the fat of the budget here at the church so much that, you know, the next thing on the line was my salary, and, um, and even farther back was uh, when Stuart was still here, and we were going to have to cut his, I was like, man, cut mine so that we can, you know, keep him, and, you know, it's like, whatever, you know, let's just do what we got to do to keep the gospel going here, and that was when the Lord provided uh, some good work for Stuart, but all of that is, uh, it's so neat to see uh, ultimately, as Paul had the heart, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and He learned that from Jesus. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Uh, The boasting's at the end of verse 9. No one's going to stop me from not receiving wages from you guys. Uh, It's just not going to happen. and I'm going to be able to boast about that, not in an ungodly boastful manner, but it's a good thing. It shows his love. It shows his self-sacrifice for these people. No one's going to stop me from that. Uh, Verse 11, why? Because I do not love you? God knows. And uh, this, I love it. It's almost modern day language, you know. Like, man, you know that I love you. Uh, He says in a few chapters back, 6, 11, he says, oh, Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. And then in the next chapter, next week, we'll see, I would very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. And, you know, he just says, if there's any doubt that I don't love you guys, oh man, the Lord knows. The only restriction in this relationship is with you guys. Verse 12 
But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. I had to read that sentence like 10 times today and I still didn't get it. So I went to the J.B. Phillips translation, a Greek scholar who wrote a book, a, a Bible for the high school kids in England during World War II, and it was much better. So as to cut the ground from under the feet of those who profess to be God's messengers on the same terms as I am. God's messengers, they are counterfeits of the real thing. Dishonest practitioners, God's messengers only by their own appointment. Hopefully that helped a little bit. I'm still a little cross-eyed from it. But verse 13 For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So Paul's been using a little bit of sarcasm, um, a little bit of irony, and now he just comes out finally in this book and says they are false apostles. And that that sometimes can be a hard call, (laughs) because that's when you've drawn the line in the sand. That's when you've said, false teacher. Uh, That's when you've said, perhaps we should stone him. You know, perhaps we should, you know, put up a banner or something that says, run away from this guy. False apostle. In the Greek, it's pseudo-apostolos. A pseudo, a false apostle. No sarcasm, just blatantly calls a spade a spade here. All throughout the scripture, Paul was bold enough to do that. And, you know, we want to be careful. Like, we want to be careful that we don't just start some hate campaign. You know, there's times that I've used men's name from the pulpit and, you know, that that I believe are false teachers teaching a false gospel. And just want to be careful in that, not to bash them or have it in a way that, you know, we don't pray for their salvation or for their repentance. And yet at the same time, I remember uh, just a guy that hadn't trusted at the time about eight years ago in Corvallis saying to me, you know, hey, I noticed that you're using the names of guys and I just don't think the Lord would do that. And I was just like, man, if you read the epistles, names are spoken. (laughs) Alexander, the coppersmith, who did me much harm. Hymenaeus. You know, these are guys that did much damage to Paul. Paul talks about him in 2 Timothy, you know, and yet, you know, in all of that humility and care and, you know, but, um, you know, you can look at Acts 15 or Romans 16 or Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Man, I don't care who it is or if it's an angel from heaven and they bring a different gospel, let them be anathema. Let it be accursed. You know, don't dilly-dally. Call it as it is, but do it in humility and pray for repentance and check yourself. You know, get the, get the plank out of your own eye so that you can then turn and, and help these brothers be restored to truth. Um, Philippians, Paul talks about them. Peter talks about them. Revelation, Paul speaks about these false teachers in the, uh, to the church in Ephesus. They are Deceitful workers, Paul says, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Verse 14, and no wonder they would do that. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The disciples do what their masters do. Shakespeare said, 
The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Sandy Adams says, don't expect Satan to appear in red leotards and horns and a pointed tail carrying a pitchfork. Satan is too sophisticated to come at you as you would expect. I mean, there's no temptation in that. (laughs) The temptation is when he makes the, the fruit look good. When he stirs up envy in our hearts and wicked and, you know, just he stirs up. He uses even good things as a launching pad for sin in our hearts. He makes bad things look good. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves, verse 15, into ministers of righteousness. So they might have a slicked hairdo and they might have a shiny suit that on the TV cameras just looks like a million bucks and probably cost a million bucks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he might be encouraging you to sow your seed money because then you'll get tenfold back. And I was so grieved to hear of just a relative of mine that took finances of ours as a family and took it down as a last-ditch effort and threw it out to a telemarketer or a televangelist telemarketer televangelist you know and and it was gone that's it that was the end and you know it just it caused a lot of destruction it's false gospel false advertising false truth which is no truth at all you know they got shiny white teeth and a wife that looks you know just really great on tv and they say just really, you know, sweet, eloquent words. But at the root of it, there's no truth. It's not based upon the scriptures. And so just encourage you guys, whether it's on the radio or the TV or Facebook or YouTube, just test things, test things. And come talk to the shepherds that the Lord's put over you to protect you from the wolves. And we realize that we're not without mistake. And so, as the Bereans did in Acts 17.11, just take everything to the Bible and look at context. And, you know, we may have times of reasoning with you and we'll say, yeah, and you need to look at the whole context of this. Genesis through Revelation. But we come to the Word as our authority. Verse, uh, well, 15 ends with, Those guys, their end will be according to their works. Verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool. Uh, If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may boast a little. In other words, hear me out on this topic of proving my apostleship a little bit, even though it seems foolish to defend it. Just hear me out a little bit more. He's going to go into it just a little bit more. Okay, verse 17, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as, as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting. And so, you know, Paul kind of steps back a little bit and just says, man, I'm just going to take some time to explain here. Like, he does that sometimes. Like in 1 Corinthians 7, 6, he says, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Uh, Verse 18, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. Uh, If you want to hear it the way that the peddlers of the gospel put it, okay, here we go. Verse verse 19. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. Verse 20. For you put up with it. 
If one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, or if one strikes you on the face, this is the, uh, there's four times here, rather three times, that Paul uses the word, you put up with it. You're putting up with it, okay? You're, you're enduring it. You're, you know, accepting this stuff. And if you put up with them doing it, then put up with someone true here doing it for you. Um, we read that in verse 4, we read it in verse 19, we read it in verse 20, and he says you, you're putting up with people who are, uh, he lists four things here, putting you into bondage, devouring you, taking from you, exalting himself, I'm sorry, it's five things, and finally the fifth thing, it's almost like the worst, like blatant, literally in your face, people would strike you in the face, and you're still putting up with it, as they bring you into bondage, and that's how false teachers work. They come and they try to bring you into bondage and put a yoke around your neck that neither you nor your fathers were able to bear. It's not how Paul worked. He says in 2 Corinthians 1 24, it's not that we have dominion over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy. We don't have dominion over you, but we are just as Jesus had servant leadership we have servant leadership. So whenever, you know, I come here and I say, I want you to come in and bow down and kiss my ring and kiss my toe and make a statue of me and kiss it, you know, and, you know, it's like, okay, we've crossed a line somewhere there. We've, we've crossed a line from true apostleship and discipleship. You know, the, the, the greatest of them all was one who was a servant, who came into this world not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. That's not how Paul worked. He didn't bring him into bondage and devour him and take from them and exalt himself and strike him on the face. And these are things that you can always test true from false ministers. He says in verse 21, To our shame I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Paul continues sarcasm. He confesses that he's too weak to abuse the sheep the way the false apostles were. Oh, that Paul, he's too weak. He's too, and they would talk about him that way. And he says, I guess I'm too weak to slap you in the face like they do and devour you and rob from you. I guess I'm guilty as charged. You know, speak as a fool. I speak sarcastically here. Hear me out. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Paul would speak of this in his evangelism to the Jews in Acts 22.3. I am indeed a Jew, born of Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and I was zealous toward God as you are all today. You know, so he, he's an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. He's of the seed of Abraham. Paul's ancestry was more than enough to qualify him as a great man, as an apostle. Not only was he the seed of Abraham, but he was an Israelite. Not only was he an Israelite, he was a Hebrew, which speaks a little more specifically to his heritage that he is Judean. He wasn't, you know, raised elsewhere and kind of uh, had one of those uh, Samaritan-type 
Jewish upbringings with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He was, he was a good Jew boy, and he speaks of that in Philippians chapter 3. He comes down to uh, saying, all of, is that a bad thing to say? I don't think it is. Good Jew boy. He was a, I don't know. I meant it well. Man, you people. There's an election coming up and you get all politically correct. He says, all these things that were gained to me, if I were able to, to boast at all, anything that's gained for me, these I've counted loss for Christ. I think I was quoting John Corson on that, by the way. So anyways, get mad at him. But then he says, I count all those things loss for the excellence of the knowledge excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord what things is he talking about things that would be gained to him and now he counts it as loss he's talking about his own self-righteousness if there was one guy on the face of the earth that could you know work his way to heaven it would have been Saul of Tarsus I mean he goes through in Philippians 3 2 through 6 um where he says, I can have confidence in my flesh, work my way to the kingdom. If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have it more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness, righteousness which is from the law, blameless. And yet, The Lord showed him on the road to Damascus how everything that he thought was a gain to him, it was as filthy rags before the throne room of God. There was still sin. He says in Romans, he says, you know what? I wouldn't have known to covet, not to covet, unless the law said not to covet. Because that was something that you don't see externally, covetousness out here. It's something that's in here. He was guilty of things that, man, as much as you try to labor on the outside, man, there was that, there's sins of covetousness on the inside that I failed. And if I failed on there, I failed at it all. And all those things that were gained to me, I've counted loss to know Jesus. And he goes on in Philippians to say, I've kind of jumped back, Jeremy. Sorry, who's that back there? Is that Olivia? Hey, thanks for running things, Olivia. He says, uh, verse 8 of Philippians 3, I've counted all his loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I count him as rubbish. So being that Jew of the Jews that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And I would give it all up. He says that I know him Woohoo, that'd be great. And the power of his resurrection, woohoo, that'd be great. And I'd give it all up for the fellowship of his sufferings. I, I don't know if that would be really great. <laughs> it was great for Paul. Because he knew the more he was suffering with Jesus, the closer he was to Jesus. The world doesn't get that, do they? That God is the one that works through sufferings. He is the God that suffered I want to be conformed to his death Paul says that if by any means I could attain to the resurrection from the dead verse 23 in our text and on we're going to go through this pretty fast what does a minister of Christ look like it's not one of luxury but it's of suffering are they ministers of Christ I speak as a fool 
I am more, and labor's more abundant, and stripes above measure, and prisons more frequently, and deaths often. When Jesus is telling Ananias to go to the street called Straight and minister to the newly converted Saul, he says, I've shown Saul or Paul how many things he's going to suffer for my sake. And we're going to see that list here. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15.30, we stand in jeopardy every hour. Not the Alex Trebek kind. We die daily, Paul goes on in that same verse to say, in the next verse to say. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes or scourges minus one. Now the law in Deuteronomy 25.3 says that 39 stripes were what was to be given, lest the man be humiliated in your sight. So 539s is 195 lashes just from the Jews. Uh, it's written by, in the Mishnah, an ancient Jewish writing describes the procedure for receiving stripes in a Jewish court. The two hands of the criminal are bound to a post, and when the servant of the synagogue either pulls or tears off his clothes till he leaves his breast and shoulders bare, a stone or block is placed behind him on which the servant stands. He holds in his hands a scourge made of leather divided into four tails. He who scourges lays one third on the criminal's breast, another third on his right shoulder, and another on his left. The man who receives the punishment is neither sitting nor standing, but all the while stooping, and the man smites with all his strength with one hand. So 195 stripes like that Paul went through as a minister. He says in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, in stripes. He lists that regularly. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. Uh, and so uh, you can read in Acts 16 and 21 the times that he was beaten um, in Philippi and beaten by the Jews there in the, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, it's the Romans that were beating him towards the end of the book of Acts uh, in the temple there, beaten with rods. Uh, he was stoned in Acts 14, verse 5. In verse 19, gives some more description of that, so much so that they drug him out of the city of Lystra, supposing him to be dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. You can read about that in Acts chapter 27. Total drama in the book of Acts. I mean, it is, it's a good read. Uh, but man, you just can hardly imagine what, uh, Paul went through there in that shipwreck. And, um, and they are treacherous, terrifying times. Um, being a bit of a history buff, you know, uh, sometimes I branch out and read different narratives of history. But uh, about the last two weeks, uh, one of the books on tape <laughs> that I'm listening to now uh, was about the sinking of the Titanic. And uh, man, horrible. Man, about every single thing that could go wrong uh, in that ship went wrong. Just a horrible story. But, um, of course, one of the final chapters was about uh, the few lifeboats uh, being all night there, about, uh, let's see, about anywhere from uh, 2.40 till about 6 in the morning uh, in icy, frigid Arctic water with ice water in the boat 
and soaking wet clothes, many of them, and trying to keep a you know, boat balanced and just exhaustion and not knowing how much long. Even when the Carpathia came to save them uh, and was just 100 yards away, men just still didn't know if they'd make it or not uh, because of how horrible it is. And they write their accounts and all of that. Um, but even more than that, the stories of the, just the terror as the ship is sinking. And um, one gal who was a, uh, a stewardess on the Titanic uh, survived and then went back to ride the sister ship, the Olympus, which became a hospital ship in World War One, and, and that hit a mine and sank again. And she writes about just the terror of going down in a ship. And uh, just, oh, horrible. What was that? Yeah, don't go, don't, don't do that job again. Uh, yeah, just, yeah. If it ends in Olympus or Titanic or anything like that, just don't get on it. Uh, and here he has three times that he shipwrecked. And it was big enough deal that he talks about it. Nights and days in the deep. Three times being shipwrecked. Verse 26, in journeys often, in perils of water. Here we have a whole lot of perils, so bear with them. Perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea. Trying not to say it so countryfied. Perils among false brethren. Just danger, danger, danger. Nine more things listed here that are observed when you're reading the book of Acts. You see many of them. As you read the book of Acts, we read of no less than 18 journeys Paul took by ship. Half of those had happened before he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And the book of Acts isn't a complete history of the life of the apostles, nor the life of Paul. And you can just imagine the journeys and the perils with the waters and the waves and the storms at sea, how often that happened. And walking and hiking through treacherous places and when you study the book of Acts and later on as he's going on his third missionary journey, he's hiking up through mountains and he's got these horrible illnesses and uh, things that would affect him for the rest of his life. You go through these um, quiet places and there's robbers just like in the Gospel of Luke with the, the uh, Good Samaritan, you know, the guys jumping out and getting him. Uh, man, that's what Paul was going through, all of that stuff for the sake of the Gospel. Whether it was Jews or Gentiles, they all hated him. For the sake of the gospel. Verse 27, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fasting often, often in cold and nakedness. He speaks of this weariness and toil. It means laboring through hardship. Gave, uh, or wanted to give Jeremy uh, the book, 50 People Every Christian Should Know. And we've got it in our library. You guys should read it. Such a good read. But it's, it's really, it should be 50 people every minister should know because it's the life of so many ministers and uh, it's not that far off from Paul's life. So many of these hard, hard things, just encouraging Jeremy, you know, man, as you're moving towards ministry, just let these guys be encouraged. I think the book used to be called On the Backs of Giants, you know, just these men that have gone before us that have been full of the Holy Spirit and have pressed through sufferings and Man, I just uh, thinking as I've been thinking about our Nepal team and just, you know, times of suffering and, you know, blisters and vomiting and earthquake. And, uh, you know, I've been a month 
uh, with sore throat and sore tonsil and sinus infection for a month and some weird thing that I picked up over there uh, that it's still there. And, you know, I think it was like a couple weeks into it, I just felt like the Lord said, hey, this, it started because you were pouring yourself out for the gospel in these nations, you know. And that's just all the glory of God, and I'm nothing. But it's the same with us, you know. We, with the Nepal team, you've got just violent vomiting and horrible stomach cramps and pain and climbing up trails, and we're praying over Jeremy, and he's vomiting at our feet while we're praying for him. We're on a hiking. He's got his trekking poles in his hand. He's just... Uh, you know, and just things that, you know, praise God, we're, we could start a little chronicle in this church of, you know, these things that, you know, live in the life of gospel advancement. And there's trials and there's, you know, torment and there's pain, but man, it's worth it for the advance. It's nothing, you know, he's worth, he's worthy of these pains and, and, um, he says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And just thinking about uh, the church in Gatling or Gold Junk, uh, which is one of the churches we went to while we were over there. Just Gold Junk's just on my heart. I wake up thinking of Gold Junk. And uh, Mountain uh, Child is there currently uh, doing ministry. And I'm, tell him hi. Tell him hi from us, you know. And Jeremy and I talking, man, if we could just get back and do a little, just pouring into them and do like an equipping time and teaching and you know, um, just investing in the church, in the churches over there. Um, but that was one of the toughest things above it all that Paul suffered was a deep, jealous care and anxiety for all of the churches. Listen to what Alan Redpath says about this, this phrase, what comes upon me daily. He says, I could not possibly convey to you adequately in the English language the force of that statement. I tried to picture it in terms of being smothered under a blanket or by being attacked and crushed by some great animal, for he could not have used a stronger word when he said, in effect, that which bears me down, that which is upon me as an intolerable load, that which is a burden, that which is something that I can never shake off day or night. It is with me always. I have no vacation for it ever. It is upon me daily. The care, the compassion, the concern of all the churches. And just as I was reading that today, I, I had to just pray, like, Lord, I want that. You know, I need that kind of care. I desire that. I see, see it so much in our elders so often and even in our church and just want that even more, that deep, load of a care for the churches verse 29 who is weak and i'm not weak who's made to stumble and i do not burn with indignation if these things happen in a church i feel it and i suffer and i fight for that church it's been said he bled when he heard that someone was wounded verse 30 if i must boast i will boast in the things which concern my infirmity and we'll see more of that infirmity or weakness next week in chapter 12 verses Five and nine through ten, but Paul's essentially saying, if you want proof of my apostleship, here it is. But it's not statistics or the numbers of converts or the number of churches planted, even because he planted churches. But he said, look at my sufferings. Look at my sufferings. Don't look at my stars, but look at my scars. That is evidence of my apostleship. 
Verse 31, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Uh, There's a few times here who he speaks in vows. And it's important to have a good contextual understanding of vows in the scripture, that the Lord doesn't forbid vows. We see Jesus vow. We see God vow. We see uh, Paul vow. Uh, Vows are not forbidden. But what you see is making a vow with the intention of breaking a vow. And if you swear by a certain thing, by great Odin's beard or by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin or whatever, you know, with, oh, well, if I don't have any hair on my chinny-chin-chin, then I can get out of this. And that's what the Pharisees would do in Matthew chapter 23, and that was the problem. But it's just good to have a good New Testament understanding uh, context. And here we see him vowing. And the Lord knows. It's a way of vowing. God knows that I'm not lying. Uh, in Damascus, the governor under Eretus, the king was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hand. You can read about it in Acts. Uh, we don't have time tonight. Nine, Acts 9, you can read about that. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that uh, it's been said that the fleeing from Damascus in a basket was felt by Paul to be one of his most humiliating moments. Because it was kind of that first time that he'd experienced this, and it would be the sign of all that he would experience in the rest of his life. But what was his life like before that? He was the one doing the pursuing. He was the one with the orders to go out and to get the guys hiding in the basket. And now he's the one hiding in the basket, escaping. And it was one of those, one of the most just difficult, strong, suffering times in, uh, in his life, and it's no doubt he uses it as one of the last uh, examples of suffering here. Uh, and uh, you can also, you can calculate the timing of that um, as he uses the governor's name to determine when he became a Christian. It was about 34 to 36 AD, just a couple years after Jesus um, walked the earth and ascended. So